If you'd open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, you are such a good and great God and worthy of our worship and our attention and of our praise and our reverence. Father, you've been so good to us individually and to our families and to our church and to our country, and we thank you, Father, for that. Father, as we bow before you this morning, as we have been singing and as we have been praying, as we have been confessing our sins, as we have read the scripture, our desire, Father, has been to honor you with all those things. And Father, now we turn to the portion of the service where we commit ourselves, Father, to the teaching of your word. Our desire is to understand those things that you have preserved for us. Our desire, Father, is to not only understand them, but Lord, then to apply them to our our living, to our thinking, to the various situations that we find ourselves in. The Father, we may live biblically, that we may honor you with every aspect of our life. And that in so doing, Father, our lives will reveal the grace of God. And the Father would lend credibility to the gospel which we desire to share with others that they may know Christ. And so, Father, we ask that you would bless us with these things this morning. And we do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. Paul writes, Now, to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And the husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? A couple of weeks ago, as we began to to make our way through the book of of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in particular, we saw that when Paul gets to this issue of marriage, that he saw that marriage is really a matter of permission, not command. And the importance of that is there are those who in the church were thinking that um, you were going to be more spiritual. You would prove yourself to be more spiritual if you did not marry. And then along with that came a lot of other difficulties in how they understood life and how life was to be lived. And we, we, we covered those things. And so primarily what we saw is that Paul did wish that everyone was like him. At the time that he wrote that, he was now single and he was content. But also he was speaking to those who are both never married and to the widows and saying that it would be good if they could remain single. And so we saw the foundational truths about marriage. That a wife is not to depart from her husband, but if she does, she is to remain unmarried or be reconciled, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. And that was the foundation. Of course, when you give the foundation, then begin to come the questions. So what about this? What if this individual is married to this individual and this is going on? 
And what about over here? What if this is taking place? You know, there, there are all these questions that we have about, you know, specific situations that either we know about or perhaps even that we are involved in ourselves. And so, so Paul is going to begin to move into some of those areas so that he can give us, uh, by the time we get done, there'll be a comprehensive understanding of how uh, marriage, what it's supposed to look like, how we are to think about it. He is also going to talk about divorce and what that looks like and the possibility of remarriage. And so we want to make sure we have a good understanding of those things that God is commanding us, those things that God wants us to know about living life here on the earth. It matters how we live. It matters if we are responding to what God's word has said about certain things or not. And so Paul is going to make those things clear to us so that we can go through maybe sometimes what we would call muddied waters and make sure that we are right with the Lord. So Paul so far has given some brief comments concerning marriage. And so as I said, he's going to begin to flesh these things out. So in verse 12 he says, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say... Now, just remember what we covered a couple of weeks ago, that this statement uh, is not indicating that Paul, that, that what follows is just Paul's opinion, and you can just take it or leave it. That's, that's not what he's say, stating with that comment. What he's saying is, is he doesn't have a direct quote from Jesus. What he is saying is still a command. Remember, Paul, as an apostle, is laying the foundation of uh, what Paul says about uh, doctrinal truth, what Paul says about the word, is the way that it is. And so the authority that he has still is intact and is not being questioned by even his own statement. Because there are some who do try to twist this and say, well, remember, even Paul said that what he said wasn't from the Lord, it was just his opinion. Well, the word opinion has been thrown in there, and that's not what he's getting at. So what he says still carries the weight uh, of God himself because he was appointed by God to lay the foundation. So before we get into the specifics that he gets into, I I want us to once again look at a little more about what their culture was like. How were these individuals understanding marriage? What, what were their views of marriage so that we can see the contrast of what the Word of God says and how they would have understood what God said about these things. So, I want to give you a quote from Plutarch. He wrote a, a book called Advice to Bride and Groom. And this kind of gives you, this back from that time period, and this kind of gives you an idea of uh, how they viewed things. And this is what he says. A wife ought not to make friends of her own but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in, and to shut the front door tight upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. So that was the view. When the two people get married, uh, the wife's friends, she only is allowed to to be friends with her husband's friends. She is to submit to his religion and forget whatever else is in the past. That's how they viewed things. And that's how they understood that. So with that in mind, whether the wife converts without the consent of her husband, because that would have been looked down upon. The wife would not be allowed in that culture to convert to any religion without her husband's consent. When the gospel was being given, there were several women who became believers in Christ. They understood that it was true, and they converted to Christianity. They didn't seek their husband's consent, and so there was going to be some issues that are going to arise out of uh, that thing. But the idea is, is that, so what does that woman do? If a woman has converted to Christ, and her husband is a non-believer, what, what does she do with that? How does she go forward in her life? 
Uh, or if the husband becomes a believer and his wife is not a believer, and let's say that he's unable to lead his wife to the Christian faith. In other words, she just says, no, I, I'm not going to believe in that. I'm going to continue to worship our family's gods, whether it's his family or her family or whatever the case may happen to be. So we have this religious disparity. There's a rift that's going to take place uh, between the husband and wife. And it would be a very culturally awkward position for them to find themselves in. Then you had some of those in the church who thought this, that when it came to mixed marriages, they believed that mixed marriages were spiritually corrupting. And as far as they were concerned, divorce was the only answer. So if you became a believer and your spouse wasn't a believer, then, then those in the church would come to you and say, that's going to corrupt your faith, it's going to corrupt your walk with the Lord. If, if your spouse isn't going to convert, you, you need to leave. You know, because your soul is at stake. That's, that's what they were thinking, that's what they were believing. And so Paul is going to set the record straight to help them to understand how they were to think about these things. Now let me make a brief comment just on the, on the term that I use. When we talk about mixed marriages, mixed marriages in the Bible are always where you ha- is always between a believer and a non-believer. I know many people today, and this has been going on for a long time, people have questions about mixed marriages and what they mean by that is different ethnicities. And there are, those, there are, those who, there are still those today who say they think it's a sin, they think it's wrong. So if we just go back to the Bible, what we need to understand is this. It's not a sin. Period. There's nothing wrong with racially mixed marriages. If you think about it, if we're going to, if if someone's going to try to toe the line on that, almost everybody's in a mixed marriage. And if you're of German descent and you marry someone who's of French descent, that's a mixed marriage. Most of the time, though, if we're going to be honest about it, when people ask that question, they only mean one thing. Because I remember one time I was asked that question. And, uh, I, and so I said, oh, you mean like uh, if your son wanted to marry a, a Japanese woman? He goes, no. Go, oh, it's usually only one thing. And that's if someone is white and someone is black and they, and they marry. They don't want to know what, that, what the deal is with that. And so you go back to the Bible. It's not a sin. It's not wrong. Some would say, well, it's unwise in our culture. Well, unwise in what way? Because the only individuals who should have a problem with that kind of a marriage would be non-believers. All believers should support it. Because they understand what does the Bible teach us about human beings. All human beings are created in the image of God. Period. Skin color is of so small significance, even scientifically, it's not even, it doesn't even make up 1% of a difference. It's not even, it's not even one-tenth of one percent of a difference. It's much less than that. It, it's not an issue. Period. So whenever anyone asks you about a mixed marriage, you, see, you should always say, oh, you mean between a believer and a non-believer. You know, force them to say it. And then say, well, we look at the scripture. It's not in there. Some will say, well, look at the Old Testament. Well, look at it. When you read the Old Testament, what becomes clear is even when he's mentioning these other peoples, it's not their ethnicity that God's concerned about. It's the gods they worshipped. Because when those individuals converted to Judaism, nobody was involved in what they called a mixed marriage. It's not called that. So we just need to kind of see it for what it is and recognize that it doesn't matter what our culture says. What matters is what the Bible says. But when we're talking about mixed marriages, what we are talking about here this morning uh, is dealing with the believer and the non-believer and they are married and how, how are we supposed to, uh, to handle that.
Now the assumption here with all of this, and this is what he's laid out, is this is where two individuals have gotten married and one of them has become converted in the marriage. Because God does clearly say that, and when you read through the scripture, that for a believer to knowingly marry a non-believer is wrong and sinful. We're not to do that. Now there are those in some countries where an individual may be a believer and they, there are still places where you don't have a choice and an individual is being forced by their family to marry someone who is maybe a non-believer. And so then these things that we're going to see here are going to apply to that as well. So again, in verse 12, Paul says this, But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. So basically, in this mixed marriage, the believer in the marriage is not to initiate divorce. That's what he's saying. The believer is not to initiate divorce. Now, sometimes as we go through this, when I make a statement like that, people say, Well, what about this? Well, we're dealing with this situation right now. This situation is that uh, we have a believer and a non-believer that are married to each other, and the non-believer is willing to remain, then that's it. The believer does not have a right ever to initiate a divorce in this. Paul explains why divorcing is not the way to handle this. It goes back to the idea of a believer being salt and light and the very real influence that we are to have on others. Verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. So contrary to the thinking of some of those in the church, a mixed marriage does not bring shame on the name of Christ. That's what some of them were thinking. And it it doesn't do that. It doesn't bring shame to the name of Christ. Furthermore, with the unbelieving spouse dwelling under the same roof as the believer, there is hope that the unbelieving partner will turn to faith in Jesus Christ. That should be the primary concern. That's the primary concern. The primary concern is not, well, now that I'm a believer, I'm no longer compatible with my unsaved spouse. That's not a consideration. Well, now that I'm a believer, I'm not going to be as happy with my non-believing spouse as I would be. That's not a consideration. The consideration is, is that you as an individual are called by God to remain in this marriage and you are to be then used by God to be a very powerful spiritual influence on the unbelieving spouse. That's what God desires of you. The prospect is of winning the unbeliever to Christ. So let's look at the phrase that he uses because it's kind of an unusual phrase. The phrase is that um, the unbelieving uh, wife or the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife or is sanctified by the husband. What does he mean by that? Because we know that an unbeliever is not saved by their spouse. We all know that. You're not saved by anyone else's faith. It's like we we talk about children. Your parents may be saved, but that doesn't mean that you're saved. You need to place your faith in Christ. So when it comes to this, what is Paul talking about? So I'm going to uh, read a couple of Old Testament passages to kind of help us understand the mindset that Paul is, is uh, considering here when he makes this statement about the unbelieving spouse being sanctified by the believer. So in Exodus chapter 40, beginning in verse 9, it reads this way, And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. And you shall hallow it and all its utensils, and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar. 
The altar shall be most holy, and you shall anoint the laver and its base, and consecrate it. Then in Numbers chapter 7 verse 1, and I'm going to read this from the American Standard Version, that's from 1901, and it reads this way, And it came to pass on the day that Moses had made an end of setting up the tabernacle, and had anointed it, and sanctified it, and all the furniture thereof, and the altar, and all the vessels thereof, and had anointed them, and sanctified them. And so now you're thinking, what in the world does any of that have to do with what we're talking about when it comes to marriage and the unsaved uh, spouse being sanctified by the saved spouse? Well, all we're pointing out here is all of these items he talks about, the furniture of the tabernacle, the furniture of the temple, those things were set apart for spiritual purposes. That's what the word sanctified means. That's what the holy means. The word holy means to be set apart. So it's not just the idea, when we talk about living in holiness... The, the full idea with that is that I'm living my life in light of the fact that I've been set apart by God and therefore I should live in that way. That's what pursuing holiness is. So it's not just that I want to be righteous. It has to be the fact that I'm seeking to live righteously because I've been set apart by God. So we can then say that we are a holy people. We all know that we sin. None of us lives a mistake-free or sin-free life. We are still considered holy. Why? We're set apart by God for God. And therefore we are holy in that sense. So the decision of the one partner in the mixed marriage, the decision of the one partner to trust in Christ as Lord, automatically sets the unbelieving partner apart. Why? Well, because the Bible tells us that when two get married, they become one flesh. And so think of it kind of like this. There's kind of an umbrella. And and if you are sharing an umbrella with your spouse, if it's a big enough umbrella, you both stay dry when it rains. That's the idea. So you both are set apart because of the one who becomes a believer. The saved spouse has their unbelieving spouse with them, and they are to influence them for Christ, which they would not have the privilege of doing if they would divorce. Walter Kaiser says this about this passage and about this verse in uh, um, uh, 1 Corinthians 7. He says, The passive voice of the verb indicates that this setting apart has not really come upon the unbeliever by himself, but is, the re- but is the result of the believing spouse. It is the faith of the believing spouse that brings about this separation of the unbelieving partner from an unholy atmosphere into a holy one. So what this means is this. The unbelieving spouse, by virtue of their partner coming to Christ, is now already set apart for special and direct spiritual influence. That is the power of the believing spouse. Because of your faith in Christ, your partner has been set aside, set aside in a sense separated, I guess you would say from the culture, not completely, not entirely, but set apart, so that they then will have the benefit of receiving direct and special spiritual influence. There's a tremendous responsibility on the believing spouse and a great privilege that is placed upon that spouse. And so we, are, we must take that responsibility very seriously in living our life and putting ourselves into that marriage, giving everything, everything we can to that marriage, so that individual will come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It is, it seems to be, rare for the believing spouse to lead the unbelieving spouse to Christ. I'm not sure why it's rare. I do not believe that in every instance the non-believer should come to Christ and will come to Christ. 
But I wonder why it's not more often, especially in our country. We don't have a lot of the cultural trappings that come with a lot of other countries. I, mean, I told you about a Muslim man, where well, he was a former Muslim man that I met when I was in Mauritius. When he became a Christian, he, he had three sons, uh, and, when he be, and so he'd been married for a while. When he became a believer, um, his family disowned him. His wife then told her dad, uh, or her father, that her husband had become a believer. And so her father then paid for her to divorce her husband. They got whatever special sanctions they had, they get, they got them. And then the courts there, because they went before a, a Muslim court, then gave uh, her sole custody of the, of, the, of the boys, and he was not allowed any visitation rights at all, because he'd become a believer. And so because of the cultural trappings that came with that, uh, he, he didn't have any choice in the matter. There was nothing that he could do with any of this. And all he was left with was praying and asking for his uh, brothers and sisters in the church that he went to to pray for the salvation of his wife and of his boys because he no longer had any contact with them. We don't have that kind of cultural trappings. There may be pressure because we live in a secular uh, culture, a secular country, and there are always those who are always going on about you know, pursuing your happiness being the most important thing. I'm not saying it's unimportant. I do believe that pursuing happiness is important to a degree, always in, in, within the bounds and the parameters that's set up by, by the Scripture for us. But besides that, there should be a, a greater, uh, I think, percentage of individuals who, be, who come to faith because of, of the believing spouse. So as we think about it, without, with, uh, we can only speak in generalities. It seems to be that in some of those cases, because I've talked to individuals who are uh, in those kinds of mixed marriages, and it seems to be that in, in their desire to make the marriage work, sometimes the uh, believing spouse is, I would say, too accommodating. Now when I, when I say that, it's not that it's wrong for them to be agreeable and agree with their spouse about whatever it is that's going on. But they seem to be so much so that the Lord never comes up. There's nothing ever in their life that, that, that even looks any different than the fact that they just want to go to a church on Sunday. So we really need to be seeking the Lord as to how it is that we can live our lives in such a way that our lives are pleasing to God. Remember that when we become believers, what we believe is that the whole person is saved. Every aspect of your life should, should be different. The way that you think should be different. Our attitudes should be different. Uh, how, what we identify as even being sinful becomes different. Uh, we become concerned about many more things. Our priorities change. Uh, even, though we're, even though we may be concerned for our own happiness, we're more concerned for the happiness of others. It, it tells us in Philippians that we should no longer look out only for our own interests, but for the interests of others. This would be a very high priority for us. We are to follow the example that Christ has given us by, by being willing to sacrifice for the sake of others. But, but that doesn't mean that we are going to be compromising um, what the Word of God says. Now, along with that, that doesn't mean that you want to become a nag uh, and, and somehow cause an individual to begin hating Christ because all you talk about is the Bible in a very negative way. We don't want to use the Bible as a way to manipulate or use God as a way to manipulate to get out of things we don't like. And so, the, you know, there's a, there's a lot of thinking that's required, a lot of wisdom that's needed as we you know, kind of live the life that God has called us to live. So if you are in a mixed marriage or you have some friends that are in a mixed marriage, you need to begin to pray for them and maybe even talk to them about you know, how they're living their life so that they can uh, be used by God to be a, a light, to, to influence their spouse into thinking about spiritual things. 
Because that is what God is expecting. And that is actually a responsibility that God has placed on the unbelieving spouse. As Paul says here, that the uh, unbelieving spouse sanctifies the unbeliever. Then he says this uh, at the end of verse 14, reading verse 14 again, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Then he says, Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but now they are holy. What in the world does that mean? He says, Your children will be unclean. And then when he says they are holy, that we know they're not, your children don't get saved because the spouse is saved. So what's he, what, what's he trying to get across here? Well, in society at that time, the Greco-Roman world, and even in Jewish law, they often debated the status of children of socially mixed unions. Now, normally, socially mixed unions, because of how everyone viewed religion back then, your social status and, and what you were religiously were always like this. There weren't any atheists back then. Very few atheists. And if they were, they never admitted it. So religion permeated every aspect of life. So whether you worship one set of gods and your spouse worship another set, or as we're talking about, one is a believer now and they no longer worship idols, you know, what do you do with that? And what happens to the children in those situations? So Paul is arguing that children of religiously mixed unions are within the sphere of gospel influence. And they cannot be used as an excuse for divorce. So the believing spouse cannot say, well, for the spiritual sake of my children, or we're going to divorce, I'm going to divorce my stinking pagan husband. Or vice versa. That's, that's not a reason. Paul says you don't give that reason. That's not what's going on here. And also we need to remember that in Roman society, children normally went to the father if there was a divorce. Uh, today, what we're used to is it always goes to the mother. And if you meet uh, someone who's divorced, let's say you meet a dad who's divorced and he has primary custody, that usually tells you something was up with the mom when they got divorced because that just doesn't happen very often. Uh, the, the general... Um, idea tends to be that children are placed with the mother primarily. That's just how it's been going. Uh, it's changing more and more for different reasons, but nonetheless, in this world that we're reading about, uh, it was the complete opposite. So a Christian wife, if she was to divorce her uh, uh, husband who was unsaved, she would lose her opportunity not only to influence her husband, she would lose the opportunity to influence her children. And Paul wants them to consider that. So I think that with the statement where he says, otherwise your children will be unclean, but now they are holy, I think Paul's making the exact same point he made with the unbelieving spouse. It's just worded it a little differently. But it, it means the same thing. Uh, the words holy and sanctified can be used interchangeably. So therefore, unbelieving children, by virtue of one parent coming to faith, is now already set apart for special and direct spiritual influence. I've heard people say this at times. Um, there was, uh, I was talking to a lady once, and she said that um, she, was, uh, she had, was raised Baptist. Her husband was raised Catholic. And so she says, so when we got married and had children, we decided that we would let the kids decide for themselves. Now, I understand to a point that you let your children decide for themselves because an individual still has to come to faith individually to Christ. But often what happens is, the individual who's the believer doesn't want to come on too strong with what they believe to be true. I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense. Because if your children choose 
let's say, to, be, to believe what Catholics believe, which we have to remember that they do not believe the same gospel we believe. There are, I believe, a few Catholics who may be true believers. It's very few. Most are not Christian. They do not believe the gospel as we know it to be true. Period. And what happens is, is that the one person says, well, I, may, I know they might choose to go with their father and be Catholic, but we're all getting along. Okay, it's the wrong parameters here. Now, I'm not saying that your goal is to create war in the family. But you do want to instruct your children in the way of righteousness. Now, I know that can be, there, there may be a thin line that you have to walk at times. I'm not, I would never even imagine that that's an easy thing to do. Uh, and it depends, I guess, on what kind of faith the Catholic uh, person has, or whatever the other faith may be. But we, but we should not just take a nonchalant attitude, because remember that your family may still be in peace, and your family may still be intact, and when they die, they're going to go to hell. That's the reality of the situation. Period. And so we need to be very concerned about that, and we just can't put that off in the back burner and say, well, it'll work out in the end, because it's not going to work out in the end. God desires to use us. That's why this has happened in our life. God desires us to be a part of whatever that solution is going to be. And we are the, we are the ones who are to, to influence them for Christ. And so we want to make sure that we are definitely doing that. Then, of course, he says this, But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So the main thing is this. If the non-believer wants to leave the believer because of their faith, because they become a Christian, then it would actually be wrong for you to fight the divorce. Now, because we're human beings and we're sinful by nature, let me just throw this out there, because it may be that the one, one individual becomes a believer and they realize that the unbelieving spouse is willing to remain and they don't like that. And so they decide to become a religious nag to where they drive their spouse nuts with all this Jesus talk and so they finally, so you push them to divorce you and then you declare, well, they just couldn't stand my Christianity and we're suffering for the faith. Okay, that's sinful to do that. All right? You're not going to fool God. So the idea here is really simple. It's very straightforward. If the unbeliever is willing to, to live with you, then you move forward and you ask God to help you, give you wisdom to do all you can to influence your, your, hus your husband or your wife or your children if they're unbelievers uh, in coming to know Christ. You are to live your life in such a way that you are a light, period, to them. If your spouse decides that because you are a believer they're going to leave, then you have to let them go and, and you... If it may be a sad situation, you definitely can pray that God would change their heart and mind. Absolutely. Uh, and when it comes to remarriage after that, uh, we'll talk about that in the weeks to come because I think that you have options there. So you're, it doesn't mean that you have to run out and get remarried. You can definitely pray for their conversion and for them to come back uh, to, um, uh, to you. And, and that would be a marvelous thing. And I've actually seen that happen. Uh, I'll share that story with you another time. But I saw a woman, she... Her husband was, she became a believer, her husband remained a non-believer, he left her, uh, and seven years later he came back after becoming a believer, and it was a, a marvelous thing. That's why he then ends with 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? goes right back to the main point. I'll tell you, uh, this, I believe this principle here, these principles are really very easy for us to understand and get. 
They're so easy that even a, a, a seven or eight year old can understand them very clearly. And I know this for a fact because I went to a banquet once. This is back in the 90s. And my youngest son went with me. Jan Michael was one who was very talkative and inquisitive. And you never quite understood what was going to come out of his mouth because his brain was always on fire. And so I went to a banquet, and I can't remember what the banquet was about, but I went to a banquet, and I'm sitting at a, sitting at a table, and he's sitting across from me. And it just so happened that at this particular table, there was a, a, a pretty good number of women that were there without their husbands. I don't know what the deal was, but anyway. So I'm talking to them, and I'm talking to him. And then Jan Michael does this. He says, Dad, I have a question, which could mean anything. And so, you know... Some of the ladies got kind of quiet. Here's this little kid. And I go, yeah, what is it? He said, what if a man and woman get married, and when they get married, and they go on the honeymoon, and she says, I got a surprise for you. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, what, what, what's the surprise? And all the ladies are now <laughs> leaning in. And I was terrified as to what was going to come next out of his mouth. I had no idea. And he said, so what if she says, I'm not a Christian? I almost said, praise the Lord. But I, I, that would not have been appropriate at the time. And, and, but I was very relieved. And so I said, well, well what, do you, what do you think would happen? And this is what he said. Nothing he can do. They're married. God says he has to love her and pray she becomes a Christian. I go, that's exactly, exactly what the Bible says. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> so the thing is, is that oftentimes we try to find ways to, to muddy the waters and to make certain things gray. But I think the Bible does a pretty good job in kind of clarifying some things for us. And so we need to make sure that we have the proper mindset as believers. And the proper mindset is that we live our lives submitting ourselves to what the Word of God says. And I want to make sure that my thinking and that my attitudes and my convictions come in line with what the Scripture says. And if mine are out of whack with what the Scripture says, I'm, I'm not the one who's right. I'm the one that needs to change. And it's okay if you don't immediately gravitate to everything the Bible says, but we, need to, but we need to make sure that we continue to study and ask God to help us to change and to submit ourselves. You, so you may be saying, well, I'm not sure about all that. We'll keep reading, keep studying, keep thinking. I think we'll come to the right conclusions. And I think we need to believe in God. We need to believe what He says in the power of the God, and power of God, and the power of the Gospel. And that it is absolutely possible for the believing spouse to lead the unbelieving spouse to Christ. Absolutely. We should expect that and we should pray for that. And we should pray for the one who's a believer because they do have a difficult life. It may, I don't mean an unhappy life because it may not be unhappy. But they have a difficult life ahead of them because they are now unequally yoked with someone who truly cannot understand their deep struggles. They're not going to grasp that because they are an unbeliever. They're spiritually dead. And we should pray then for their ultimate happiness which will only come by the unbelieving spouse coming to know Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your kindness and grace and love. And again, Father, for the, the clarity of, of your teaching in Scripture. Father, we ask that you would help us. Help us, Father, to, 
submit ourselves willingly to what the Word of God says, to reformulate our thinking if necessary, so that, Father, our thinking is in line with Scripture. We pray, Lord, that we would never go beyond what the Scripture says. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us if we have at times a negative attitude towards your Word, because we don't like what it says, or we don't like the way that it's said. We pray, Lord, that we would realize that sin affects every aspect of life, and the difficulties that we have in marriage, and sometimes to the degree that we've seen today, it's because of sin in the world. And the only way that that can be addressed, Father, is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that it can be addressed. And that we can be saved from the power of sin. We can be delivered from its grip. And, Father, we can be restored and we can be reconciled to you and to each other. And, Father, we pray that we'll be the emissaries, the willing emissaries of, of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And that we will live our lives truly believing in the power of the gospel. And so, Father, we thank you once again for saving us from our sin. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to deliver us, Father, from our faulty thinking. Now, Father, you would continue to cause our hearts to submit to the word. As always, we thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.